0: Trains were coming into use for some transport, but motor vehicles still hadn't been invented, so in the field, horses and mules were needed to transport munitions and provisions. There were also heavy horses, whose job was to move around the heavy artillery. And of course, there was the cavalry. It's sad to say that military tactics really hadn't changed much during this long transition of increasing firepower. And it was the horses that really paid for it. I'm Abby Nemec, and this is A Time for Horses. Many people have sighed for the good old days and regretted the passing of the horse. But today, when only those who like horses own them, It is a far better time for horses. C.W. Anderson You're listening to a podcast about people and horses. Each episode, I take a look at a true story that connects somehow to horses, horse people, or the horse business. I'll tell you the story, sure, but I'm also going to tell you why I think it's a story worth telling. So, set the cruise control, pick up a pitchfork, step onto the treadmill, or pour another cup of coffee. I've got a story to tell you. We're working on a little three-part series of stories for you, about one of the most enduring ways in which the human-horse relationship has been maintained over the thousands of years that we have been together, the horse at war. We did a three-part series last year on a famous war horse from the Korean War, which was pretty popular. If you like this story, I'm sure you'll like that one as well. You can check it out, starting at the beginning, by going to a com forward slash flame of the morning. If you're listening on a podcatcher, that's the title of part one, flame of the morning. For this new series, I started out with a plan to tell a story from World War II that I thought you'd like. Then I heard another one from World War I that I really wanted to tell, and that one gave me the idea for the third story, which is actually the first story and which really made it into a series. Once we got there, it was pretty clear that I should set the series up with a bit of an introduction that gives a context for it. That's this episode. So you see, whenever you decide to tell a story about a series of historical events, it's always tricky to figure out where to start. In this instance, it seems the best place to begin is at the beginning. Please be advised that, although we try hard not to be graphic in our content, this episode does contain descriptions of events occurring during military action, and so it may not be suitable for all listeners. Mm. If you're prepared for that, here we have the story of... Episode 10, The Horse at War. Horses and humans have lived together for thousands of years. As far as we know, it was around 5000 BCE that people first began keeping horses as a source of food, particularly in climates that had a harsh winter. You see... The species Equus Caballus first evolved on the Great Plains of North America during the last Ice Age, where it lived alongside caribou, muskoxen, bears, and woolly mammoths. At the end of that era, horses migrated across the Bering Land Bridge before the big ice sheets melted, and the flood created what we now know as the Bering Strait. The horse was extinct in the Americas for about 12,000 years. Horses did well on the Asian steppes, though, and because they handled winter weather so well, better than cattle and sheep, they began to be domesticated as a source of winter food. So, that was around 5000 BCE, and eventually humans maneuvered that relationship into one that involved actually riding the horses, which by 3500 BCE involved a rope or leather bit of some sort in the horse's mouth. So that allowed the rider to stop and steer the horse. We know this because skeletal remains of these horses show wear marks on their teeth. This, the fact that humans could now ride horses in a predictable way, really changed the world For both species, the riding of horses meant that humans would begin to manage the breeding and selection of horses for their needs. At first, it would have meant that they simply chose to ride the most agreeable animals, the right size, and the ones they could easily catch. They'd eat the other ones. Over the centuries, as humans began to control the herds and manage the breeding stock, they began to select horses for a variety of traits including speed, size, and appearance. In exchange, the horses got some degree of security because humans had a vested interest in the survival of the equine species. The riding of horses changed things for humans by giving them the ability to travel vastly greater distances at much higher speed. They could see better from a higher vantage point And this new means of transportation really changed their perspective on the world around them. This happened at about the same time as the invention of the wheel and axle, right about the beginning of the Bronze Age. Interestingly enough, the people in the Americas at this time, who were out of contact with the other continents, never developed a wheeled vehicle. It is supposed that this is because, until the Europeans brought horses back to the continents, they didn't have any way to move a wheeled vehicle. And so, the wheel wouldn't have had the same value for them. So the next shift in our relationship with horses was to harness them for pulling wheeled vehicles. This meant that humans could now transport more belongings and engage in trade. They took their ideas with them and picked up new ideas wherever they went. Of course, it was bound to happen that this new ability to move brought people not just into contact with each other, but into conflict. And by 2000 BCE, humans had invented the spoked wheel and the chariot. Once they were mounted, humans became much more effective and efficient at propagating war and the power of many mounted warriors was, like transportation, greatly amplified over an army on foot. These early mounted warriors used spears and bows and arrows pretty universally, although the bow, because it was a ranged weapon, meaning it could be used outside the range of physical reach, was most useful. It was light and could be easily reloaded from a quiver of arrows— Since the horse was so highly mobile, it was possible to fight effectively from a distance. Early military tactics were developed that grouped chariots into squadrons armed with shields, javelins, and swords to be used if they ran out of arrows. As a weapon for mounted use, or even standing in a chariot, the bow was probably the most useful weapon until the invention of guns. As a matter of fact, Hun archers and the Mongols later on were able to conquer enormous swaths of Asia and Europe. Their horsemanship was outstanding, which made them hard to beat as they used their horses to their advantage in battle. The Huns attacked in small bands and used apparent chaos and disarray to generally confuse the enemy. The Mongols used larger groups and feigned retreat to draw the enemy to a suitable area where it would be possible to encircle them and attack from all sides at once. Both of these are tactics made possible by skilled horsemen on fast horses. The Hunnish and Mongolian soldiers also had the advantage, being what we now call horse peoples, of traveling light because they were equipped with their own supply line. While they were out on raids, they would readily hunt for meat and make use of the local game for their rations, which they would preserve through drying. They also would commonly eat the meat of any horses that were disabled during battle, a highly efficient way to supply the troops. If neither of those was available, they would consume the blood of their live horses for nourishment. As long as the horse had plenty of food, it would replenish its supply of blood while they traveled, which was very efficient. Each soldier had his own cavi, four to six horses, allowing both the Huns and the Mongols to travel tremendous distances and arrive ready to fight. Now, of course, it takes quite a bit of skill, tactical training, and many skilled fighters to make a difference using a bow and arrow and it's most effective at a distance and in open country. An archer has a very different task in a forest or farmland than on a plain. During the Iron Age and into the Middle Ages, various civilizations settled into farming communities. They also developed their own favorite types of swords, axes, and spears for use in close combat, on rough terrain or in dense vegetation, as well as armor, and chainmail to defend against them. Of course, this sort of equipment comes at the cost of being heavy, and so the next development in military use of horses was to breed selectively for size. This occurred first in the Near East with the development of the Nisian horse, a strong muscular horse that could carry the heavy cataphract, the horse enclosed with scale mail and the warrior in chainmail, This was the first true heavy cavalry, developed as shock troops, for hard impact and mounted fighting at close quarters. In some cases, heavy cavalry would charge the enemy, carrying lances in formation and attacking at high speed. They would need to advance slowly until they were just outside the reach of the enemy's ranged weapons, and then charge as fast as possible to reach the line at speed with the maximum impact. The lance would pierce one or two of the opponents and then be left behind. The knight would carry on forward with another weapon that he carried, like a sword or an axe. Often, this fighting would be on foot, as a sort of combination of cavalry and heavy-mounted infantry. The horses would be sent safely to the rear. Horses were, after all, expensive. Again, various traditions arose around the use of heavy cavalry, and some would carry ranged weapons such as javelins or bows, while some would carry spears or pikes. Defense against the charge was made by infantry with pikes. Since those targeted the horses, they induced the knights to dismount and fight hand to hand. Later on in the Middle Ages, more powerful longbows and crossbows came into use. Used defensively. This really made both the light and heavy cavalry very useful. But in terms of defense, once the enemy's weapons could reliably pierce armor, this particular form of heavy cavalry gradually became obsolete. First, it was single-shot pistols carried by the cavalry, first available in the 16th century. Then, it was long flintlock rifles about 100 years later. These were all muzzle-loaded guns, meaning to fire it, you load the gunpowder through the muzzle and put in the projectile afterward, in order to fire a ball or a canister of smaller shot. Each time you load and fire, it's a couple of minutes, though developments got that down to two or three shots per minute over time. By the middle of the 1800s, that problem went away with the development of cartridge ammunition. This transition fell between the Crimean War, the last war to be fought with only muzzle-loaded guns, and the Civil War, during which President Lincoln ordered 100,000 repeating carbines for the Union Army. By this time, the equine military role had changed. Infantry was still important, of course, as it always has been. And hand-to-hand, they are very effective. But they couldn't do it alone. Trains were coming into use for some transport, but motor vehicles still hadn't been invented, so in the field, horses and mules were needed to transport munitions and provisions. There were also heavy horses, whose job was to move around the heavy artillery. And of course, there was the cavalry. It's sad to say that military tactics really hadn't changed much during this long transition of increasing firepower. And it was the horses that really paid for it. Our next few stories will unwrap this a little bit for you. First will be a story from the Crimean War, which brought us the battle at Balaclava. You've probably heard this story in Alfred Lord Tennyson's ballad, The Charge of the Light Brigade. I had, but then I started looking into it, and I read a couple of books, and, man, it's a story— you won't be surprised to know that the various sources on the subject don't all agree about what happened, and I found a great book that makes a historical detective story out of it, providing a solid rationale for some answers. Balaclava is often thought to have been the story of the tragic loss of men's lives, and it was. But the part of the story that you haven't heard is about the loss of horses. Historian Terry Brighton writes in his book, Hell riders. that in the charge of the Light Brigade, less than one in six men were actually killed. Of the horses that began the charge, more than half did not see the end of the day. The winter that followed, compounded by the incompetence of the army in supplying food and shelter for the men or the horses, killed hundreds more. They learned what the Huns and the Mongols had already known. You have to keep everyone fed to have a functional army, especially the horses. I also have for you a great story about another charge, this one from the Great War, that is considered to be the last great cavalry charge, and it wasn't even made by a cavalry unit. The Battle of Beersheba took place in 1917 and featured the fourth Australian light horse unit in a clever and daring assault. This story isn't nearly as well known, but it is definitely worth telling. Finally, the third story in this series will be another one that you may have heard of. In fact, you may have seen one of the movies about it or read one of the books. This story is about a group of priceless horses that were stolen from Austria by the Nazis during World War II and held captive in Czechoslovakia. A courageous dispatch of US military personnel was sent by General George S. Patton to retrieve the horses in the first days after the end of the war. It was this time period, the hundred years between 1850 and 1950, that changed the world for domesticated horses, donkeys, and mules. In general, whatever we would wish for today's equines, their current state of existence is vastly improved. It was a hellacious time for them, as the human's first and foremost weapon of war. And they paid for the human desire for territorial reach with their lives. The Gatling gun appeared in 1862, and by the start of the Franco-German War in 1870, breech-loaded guns were in regular use. By the end of the 19th century, in 1893, the semi-automatic handgun with a clip of ammunition in the grip was on the market. It would be 21 years before the start of the Great War, which finally made apparent that military technology had outrun the horse. I hope you've enjoyed this short story about how horses have been a part of human conquest from the very beginning. And that you're interested to listen in next time for a fascinating and tragic tale of equine devotion. If you're listening to our show on the web, you already know that our website is atimeforhorses.com. And if you're not, you'll find the notes for this episode at atimeforhorses.com forward slash The Horse at War. This episode of A Time for Horses was prepared, presented, and edited by me, Abby Nemec, with sound design by Carolyn Rudder who also produces the Dr. Audio Adventures audio drama at com. Our music and sound effects are shared through the generosity of their creators. In this episode, you've heard Last Slice of Pecan Pie and Branches by the generous Josh Woodward, as well as Ice Age Flute by Eric Sampson, also known as Eric the Flute Maker. There's a brief note from Eric about the Ice Age flute that he makes in comparison to the original artifact on which it's based. He says, quote, The original Ice Age flute would have been extremely high-pitched. That cave in Germany, deeper into it from where the flute was found, had nice acoustics. My inspired Ice Age flute is wider with a better flute material. Bamboo versus bone. So mine is deeper and richer. I figure the original would have morphed into a deeper flute. Which from Germany I think came the recorder once lathes came about. There was no bamboo in Europe naturally growing. End quote. You've also heard Horse Riders by Derek and Brandon Fichter. If you like these pieces or are interested in one of Eric's flutes, pop over to our show notes page at a timeforhorses.com forward slash the horse at war, and you'll find links to places you can find them. Our title track, as always, is Shake It and Break It by Lennon's Southern Serenaders, an antique phonograph recording in the public domain. The show notes for this episode were written by Brian Hoteling. And of course, our visual design is all done by Ricky Bloxham from rbloxham.com. We have a few new comments from out in the wild world to share with you. We got a review from Santana321 in the United States who said, I found this podcast when searching podcasts about horses. I love horses, and this podcast has made my time walking the dog or driving my car to work a delight. This is a very well-done podcast, and I will tell all my horse and non-horse people about this podcast. This is great. I love hearing what you're doing while you're listening. Santana 321, I listen to my favorite shows in the car as well, and when I'm in the barn with the horses. I'm glad to hear we help in making that time enjoyable for you. We also got a lovely email from the website, sent in by Sarah Jones, who said, I discovered your podcast as a recommendation on my podcast player and absolutely love it. I love the details that you give to help non-horse people understand how we do things, like measure hands, and the great background information you've given on the breeds. Well done, Thanks for the support, Sarah. If you too would like to reach out in a super quick and easy way, do what Sarah did and hop on over there to our website where you can use the handy dandy little contact form we have posted. Share a little love and then click and it's flying on its way to our inbox. Finally, our friend Paragon Warrior from Australia left us a review saying... This thoughtful podcast and Abby's lovely, soothing voice are just the ticket, whatever I'm doing any time of the day. Informative, involving, and never indelicate, she tells my favorite kind of true stories. I'm glad our stories are something you enjoy spending time with as well, Paragon Warrior. I try hard to stay on the never indelicate side, so that is feedback I'm glad to hear. And thank you for listening. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your reaction to our show. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to do the three R's. Rate, review, and recommend the show. Pop into your podcatcher and drop us a five-star rating. And while you're there, leave a review that tells us where you like to listen to A Time for Horses. If you do, I'll read it on our next episode. And finally, you know the thing that makes a good podcast great? More listeners, So go ahead and tell someone the old-fashioned way that you are enjoying our show. That is how we continue to grow, you know. If you're new to the concept of listening to a podcast, I'm really glad to hear it. You know, you can subscribe to the show for free and never miss an episode. Just go to atimeforhorses.com forward slash subscribe for links to the various places where you can find us. And... Thanks for giving me your ear space. I'll see you next time.